Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, page 308 of your Pew Bibles, and I encourage you to turn there as we read um, this part of David's story. We're in a series now, a fairly brief series actually, on the life of David, who was, of course, began as a shepherd, um, became a courageous and effective soldier in the nation of Israel, and was anointed and served as king over God's people. And in this part of the story, David is now king over Israel. And um, Pastor Zach's sermon last Sunday, we learned that that, that is the case. David has uh, been serving as king now for a little while. And in this part of the story, we find the darkest moments, the darkest chapter in David's life. Uh, this is where, of course, we maybe would be well aware as we're, we're seeing the, the section here that we're going to be contemplating. David has sinned, has sinned against God, has sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And what is often the case in contemplation of this passage is the sin itself, and that happens in 2 Samuel 11. I would strongly encourage you to read that chapter. It is an eloquently and powerfully told story of David's terrible sin against the Lord, against Bathsheba and Uriah. And uh, we're going to focus more, though, today on what happens after David had sinned against God. And so um, it would be helpful, though, for you to know the basic events of 2 Samuel 11 so that we can understand the passage that we'll read today. So in 2 Samuel 11, we learn that David should have been out with his army, It was the time where kings would go into battle, often to protect their own nations. And so that should have been happening at this time of year. But David is lounging around in his palace. And so he is being slothful. He's not um, obeying God's call upon him to, to go out and be an active king. But he's become lazy, at least in this season in his life. And while he is lounging around the palace, he sees Bathsheba bathing. And so, again, we're probably familiar with the story. He lusts after Bathsheba. He inquires about her, learns that she is a married woman. But that doesn't stop David from continuing to pursue her, which he does and commits adultery with her. So Bathsheba learns that she is with child as a result of this adultery. And in the rest of the story, David goes about trying to fix the situation, trying to cover up his guilt and his sin. And he even goes so far is to order that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who is a good man, a faithful man. Uh, David orders that, that Uriah sent to the front lines of the battle, and he dies there. So this makes David an adulterer and a murderer. And after Uriah falls in battle, David marries Bathsheba. And we read at the end of 2 Samuel 11, the thing David did displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's the last verse of 2 Samuel 11. So we pick up the story with uh, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. 
And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this passage, we learn a truth about God. We learn that nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. And as you hear that truth about God, and as we are reminded of it in this passage, is that good news to you, or does it sound like bad news? That God knows everything you do. That God knows everything you think. That God knows the desires of your heart. In theological terms, this is called God's omniscience. And sometimes we can just rattle off the characteristics and attributes of God and say that God is omniscient, all-knowing, without hardly realizing the impact that that's going to have on our lives. But brothers and sisters, we learn in this passage and throughout the whole Bible that God knows everything everything about you. He knows us more than we even know ourselves. In this text, the Lord has sent David or Nathan to David to tell him that God saw it all, that God knows what he has done. At the end of the previous chapter, it could seem in earthly terms like David has gotten away with it. 
The very end of 2 Samuel 11 says that what David had done displeased the Lord, but it doesn't seem in the end of 2 Samuel 11 like there are going to be very many earthly consequences to what David has done with Bathsheba. It could seem a little bit like David has escaped the consequences of his sin. We can imagine a powerful man like David at the end of 2 Samuel 11 where he has married Bathsheba, Uriah has been killed in battle. We can imagine David thinking, wow, I I fixed it. I did it. We could imagine David thinking, I'm so powerful, so wealthy, so exceptional that maybe I can get out of this without having to confess, without having to repent, without having to change. From his previous experience with Saul, though, David would have known that when a king sins against the Lord, there are going to be real-world consequences to that sin. But maybe David is thinking here, yeah, that applied to Saul, but maybe I'm different. Maybe I'm the exception to that rule. Or it's possible that David isn't thinking all that much at all. He's just kind of following his instincts. That's kind of how it seems, actually, if you read the story of 2 Samuel 11, where David is just responding often very foolishly and sinfully to the next thing that that he has to respond to, the next lie he has to cover up, the next lie he has to double down on. We can imagine a person who's just caught up in a, a series of events, and instead of turning and repenting at one point, they just keep going further and further down the hole. So that's very much what's happened in 2 Samuel 11, where David has has seen Bathsheba, and he sinfully follows this path, a path of lust that turns to adultery, that turns to murder, that turns to a cover-up, that turns then into then marrying Bathsheba. And he's thinking maybe, though, maybe I've gotten away with it. I almost think of David at the end of 2 Samuel 11 like a bank robber who's sitting in, you know, the the hideaway motel with the stack of cash and just sort of wondering, are the police going to be knocking on the door? And he almost feels like maybe he's gotten away with it. But one of the signs of grace in this passage is that God not only knows David's sin, but that God sends Nathan to open David's eyes to his sin and to prompt him to turn away from that sin. That's one of the main ideas and the main lessons I think we need to learn from this passage. One of God's graces to David, one of God's gracious acts towards us is to open our eyes, to help us to see our sin. For David, that comes in the form of a parable from the prophet Nathan. And I love how the story is told. Nathan just gets right into it. In the beginning of 2 Samuel 12, he he tells this parable about the rich man who stole a sheep from the poor man. And this tugs at David's heartstrings in the way that parables can often get around or or over our, our defenses. The parable does just that for David. It goes right past his defenses, um, what the pastor Paul Tripp calls our inner lawyer. The parable goes right around David's inner lawyer where he wants to defend himself and tugs at David's heartstrings so that he can see an injustice has been done against the poor man. 
And so David becomes emotionally invested in the story. He wants justice for the poor man, and it was all a setup because David has committed a far greater sin than the rich man in that parable. If David was indignant about the theft of a sheep, how much worse is it that he took another man's beloved wife? So, it's interesting to see what happens right after David is confronted. In our world today and in the ancient world, the typical kingly response to such a confrontation would be to double down on that sin and on that hiding and to remove the prophet as a traitor, a conspirator, someone who is just a rabble-rouser who just meant to do harm and evil towards the king. This happened in the ancient world very commonly when a prophet would speak against a king in such a way. It happens in our world today with King Kim Jong-un or, or Vladimir Putin. When something is revealed that they have done that is evil, that person is gone, assassinated, killed. That would be in very much keeping with how kings typically responded to an accusation of corruption or of sin. But God is at work in the heart of David. So David's response is a good one. After all this sin, after all this mess, after going further and further down into the hole of depravity, David finally awakens, saying in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan wonderfully says to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. But David repents in a fuller way than just those six words that we read in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. It's actually just two words in the original Hebrew, I have sinned against the Lord. We find David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. And I encourage you to turn there now in your Bibles. We'll read all of Psalm 51 to learn where David's heart is at. It's so wonderful that we have the Psalms of David teaching us um, the condition of his heart, the disposition that he has towards God. We did this several weeks ago when we read the psalm that David wrote while he was hiding from Saul in the cave. And we could hear about where David's heart and his mind were at in that situation. Now we have how David is thinking through things, how he is approaching the Lord in Psalm 51. Notice that prescript part there. Often that gets bypassed in our reading of a psalm, but this is very important to consider. It's a psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Hear David's heart, David's response to this rebuke. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a, a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Notice the plea of David should also be our plea when we are caught in sin, when we recognize that we are sinners, when we are just pricked by the Spirit deep within. Notice the words of David, have mercy on me. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Restore me. Deliver me. This is the right response to a rebuke. Confession. Seeking forgiveness. Moving towards the Lord instead of running away. In today's terms, in the New Testament, this is moving towards the cross instead of running away. Moving towards Jesus with the same request Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore me, deliver me as only you can. As we seek to apply these lessons from David's life, I want to ask three questions this morning. First question for application. Can you see that you are the man? That you are the one? That you are the person who has sinned against God. I'm not talking now about the person next to you. About the person you work with. About your neighbor. Can you see, like David saw, you are the one. The wrong response to hearing the story of David and Bathsheba would be, Wow, David did some bad things and got himself caught up in a really bad mess. I would never do something like that. But it's all too often the response when we read about these dramatic sins in the Bible where we would fail to see every sin against God is rebellion against God in the same way. There is no person who is without sin who is is an exception to God's just requirements for us. We need to hear that constantly, lest we forget. 
We need to hear that every week in worship, that we must confess our sins before God. There is not one who is righteous before Him, save Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son Himself. So, in this sanctuary, there are a lot of sinners. We're in the assembly of the saints, made into saints through Jesus Christ, but we also recognize, even right now, that we are sinners. You are a sinner. You are the man. The wages of sin is the same for every person, and there is no exception. The wages of sin is death. Do you recognize that God sees your sin? That God sees it all? That God sees your heart, your thoughts? That God knows the hateful thought that you thought in your mind against that driver who went down the freeway or that person in the grocery store checkout line or your neighbor or your family member or your spouse or your classmate, that God knows your thoughts, knows your actions, and there are consequences to sin. One of the main themes of the Old Testament, especially in the minor prophets, is that sin is far more destructive than we think. That, that in our culture just like in the ancient Israelite culture, we, we get so good at washing over, whitewashing sin, so that we would think maybe the consequences actually aren't that bad. Or maybe the consequences won't really apply to me because I'm the exception. I'm different than those people who got caught up in that sin and it started to ruin certain things of their life. The minor prophets, thinking particularly of Hosea and Amos, come to the people of Israel with very stark, frank, serious language about the destructive nature of sin. And we need that language. We need to see it for ourselves as well. And part of the purpose, too, of the minor prophets or of a prophet like Nathan is to, to point out that there's, there's no fixing this that you can do. That when we recognize how destructive sin is, we will quickly realize, I can't fix it. I can't repair this mess. But the Christian says, Jesus can. The Lord can do it. The Lord can repair me, can do all these things that David has been praying about. The Lord can, can create in me a clean heart, can renew in you a right spirit. If you repent... If you turn to him in faith, if you say those words of David, simple words, I've sinned against the Lord, coming to him with faith. So that's the first point. Can you see first that you are the man, that you are the one who sins? Secondly, we can see in the story that the chapter in David's life lasted only a few months. This is this, this time of wandering away from the Lord, doubling down, making sin worse, making it more destructive by compounding sin after sin. This lasted for a few months, and we know this because by the time the son was born, David had repented. But we should ask, how long will this season last in your life? The season of doubling down, of going further down into sin, of trying to hide it, of trying to fix it yourself. The longer you wait to confess before God, and to other people who you are sinning against, the more misery you will live in while you wait. For the person who is familiar with 
Confession and turning to Jesus after you sin, that dark time lasts only a short time. Where you could come to Jesus, come to God and say, create in me a clean heart. I know you can do it. I know you can repair me. You've done this before in my life and I know that, that, that God can restore you again. For that person, that, that time of wandering, that time of darkness is short because they've learned to confess quickly. But for other people, this time of darkness and wandering from the Lord lasts a whole lifetime. One of the reasons that people refuse to repent like this is they're worried, what will other people think? What will people think when they find out what I've done? It's even possible that people can confess your sin to God very easily, but you're pretty worried about what would happen if other people would find out what you did. What does that say about our view of God? If you can easily confess a sin to God, but oh no, my spouse could never know. My friends could never know what I've done. If you don't mind if God knows, but it's too difficult to tell your spouse or your best friend about your sin, it reveals that you value your reputation even more than you value your relationship with God. And this is a serious issue in our culture when we try to hide, try to hide, like Adam and Eve after the first sin, to run away, to try to cover themselves, to try to fix it themselves instead of going to God in confession and doing the work of confessing to people who you have sinned against. That shows that, that we recognize we need help that we need people to come alongside us so that we would say no to that sin in the future. And brothers and sisters, I want to say this is an area where we have massive room for improvement in our denomination in truly repenting and asking for help from one another. It's possible that you read prayers of confession without really confessing, without really being what the New Testament calls cut to the heart. But where the Spirit is at work, there will be, uh, the Apostle Paul says, deep conviction. Conviction not only of sin, but conviction to confess that sin before God and to the people who we have sinned against. This is an area where we, with our, our, our sort of liturgies, can move through a time of confession and rattle off the lines from the Heidelberg Catechism or even from the Bible itself without really being cut to the heart like David was. You might know Psalm 51 by heart, but do you say it with your heart? Do you say it with your, all your inmost being? Is it, is it the cry of your heart to say the words of Psalm 51? Where you would recognize before God, I can't do it. And there are going to be consequences for this sin. But God, you can, you can forgive me. Where you could say, truly, honestly before God, I've sinned against you. Forgive me through Christ. Create in me that clean heart that I know I need. Brothers and sisters, do not wait another day to pray in that way to God. Do not wait another day to be washed, to be cleansed, to be forgiven. Thirdly and finally, 
let's recognize we are all going to sin. And so when we sin, will we confess or will we then live in the dark? This is sort of thinking for the future. Each of these points is almost the same, I confess, but maybe set in different ways, in ways that I hope are helpful. We need to recognize we're going to sin. The Canons of Dort very clearly teach that in this life, we will sin against God. And so how are we going to respond when we sin? Are we going to have to pretend like we didn't do anything that was that bad, or are we actually going to bring that sin to Christ whenever we, whenever we commit it? Uh, allow me to use an illustration from parenting in sort of fleshing out this point. One approach to parenting is to work tirelessly so that your kids won't mess up, that your kids won't sin, that they won't do bad things. And uh, there are various ways of referring to this type of parenting, a helicopter parent. It's even called a bulldozer parent that would sort of pave the way in front of kids so that they could have an easy life. But this is one model of parenting that says, you will never mess up, you will never do what's wrong, and I'm going to make sure of it. Another approach is to recognize they are going to mess up. They are going to sin. And the goal of parenting, of course, becomes helping them avoid those mistakes as much as they're able. But then the goal of parenting becomes when a child sins, how will I help them? How will I help them turn to get back on the right track? How will I help them confess? How will I help them learn from their mistakes? How will I help them change the course for the future? You can see it's a pretty different way of understanding parenting. Almost imagining in the first scenario that maybe if we're good enough parents, they might never sin or mess up. The other is to recognize we live in a world of temptation and in families, families need to be places of confession, restoration, where we say words like, I'm sorry and I forgive you and let's move forward together and say no to that sin in the future. I know many of you were probably raised in very strict homes where you can't imagine a parent or a grandparent saying, I'm really sorry. Would you forgive me? Or where you can't imagine making a mistake, even thinking back to your own childhood and saying, and and imagine coming to your parent and saying, here's what I did. I've sinned against the Lord and sinned against you. Can you help me? Could you forgive me? Again, it's a room, there's massive room for improvement in our sort of ripping, buttoned up culture for confession of sin and honest conversations. Thinking about my own children, I recognize they're going to sin. And I'm, I'm always hoping that when they do, that they would come and tell me that I would help them with that. I hope that we can talk about sin together. And we're telling them this, uh, please come to me or or Pam, my wife, when you make a mistake, we want to help you. And I would say the same thing even to you as a church. I know that that as a pastor, I'm a pretty serious guy a lot of times. But I hope that you all know, the flock of this congregation, that when you sin, 
I want to help you. I want to help you see what the sin was, bring it to Christ, make a plan to move forward. It's what we've got to do as a church. That is what we see happening where Nathan comes to David with a word of rebuke. It is a serious word and there are serious consequences. But brothers and sisters, this is real life together as a church. And I really do want to implore you, if you're stuck in a sin now, to point to, if you know you've been living in this darkness for years or decades, you've got to bring it to the Lord. And I want to help you do that. So, Maybe not after the service today, although that could be the case if it's the Lord has put it on your heart to do that, to find me, to find an elder, to talk about it with your spouse when you, right when you get home from church today, but to confess to them and to, that they would help you confess it before God, bringing these things to the Lord, bringing them into the light so that we might be forgiven in Christ. If that is my attitude towards my children, how much more does our Heavenly Father have that attitude towards us? Bring it to me. Come to me. Confess your sin. Turn to me, says the Lord, that he might forgive, that he might show his love again to you, that he might really help you in a way that really only God can, changing your heart and and truly cleansing your soul. I love how the author Edward Welch put put all of this, Um, so many of these themes coming together in this quote, where he wrote in his book about, it's a book about addictions. He wrote this about um, what we do with God's knowledge of all of our sins and how that might maybe cause us to try to run away from God like Adam and Eve or like David was doing. He says, the fact that God sees every aspect of our lives may at first leave us afraid and eager to hide from God rather than in awe, wanting to embrace him. But the fear of the Lord makes us aware both of God's holy purity and hatred of sin and his holy patience and forgiveness. When we remember both, we have no reason to run in fear, especially since there is no place to run beyond the gaze of God. Instead, as we look at the Lord, we see that he invites, cleanses, and empowers us to grow in holiness. That's the correct response to that sense of guilt. It's to come to the Lord so that he would cleanse, empower, and empower us to grow in holiness. David knew. David knew God. He knew that he should have known better than to sin against God in that way, but his knowledge of God as being slow to anger and rich in steadfast love also prompted him to move towards the solution, which was to come to God in repentance, to confess. And do you know God like that? Do you know God as a heavenly Father who is absolutely holy and requires our confession, but also delights in our confession? that we're coming to him for the help that we need. The reason that a Christian confesses his or her sin isn't just to get out of the negative consequences of that sin. The reason a Christian confesses your sin is to be restored to God. 
to be restored. It's a positive reason for confessing sin, not just to, to flee from the punishment of sin so that we would get out of the punishment, but that we would be restored into a relationship with God, which is what we need. So like David, we must say, I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord wonderfully says to us, through Christ, I have put away your sin and you shall not die. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the redemption, forgiveness, and life we have through Jesus. Thank you for your Spirit's work in our lives, that just as your Spirit worked in David, in his heart and mind, to prompt him to confess, Lord, your Spirit is at work among us, in our hearts and minds, prompting us to come to you with all our sin, so that we might be washed clean. God, we recognize nothing is hidden from you. And so we confess and ask that you will remove from us all our iniquity, that you would forgive us and that you would do for us what you have done for King David, restoring to us the joy of your salvation, creating within us clean hearts, renewing a pure mind, a pure heart that is set on you. God, we thank you that we have a Redeemer who is Christ, so we can come to you in confession knowing that there is forgiveness. Oh God, we thank you for the peace that comes from knowing Jesus, our Redeemer. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.